Now, this morning, I want to have you turn with me to John chapter 8. I'm going to read from the first part of this chapter. And as you turn to your Bible, you may notice many Bibles have it in italics. Some actually take the passage I'm going to read and put it in a footnote. That's because the most ancient manuscripts of John's gospel do not include this story, or they include it in a different place. In fact, this story is found in some ancient manuscripts of Luke. What scholars tell us is that here we have an ancient, authentic witness to Jesus Christ and something that he did but early on, there were, were doubts as to where it belonged. And so, different scribes placed it in different places. It's almost certain that it wasn't original to John and certainly not in this position. But it is authentic Jesus tradition. And so, we're going to read it and see what we can learn from it. Look in chapter 1, or rather chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Charles Dickens famously began his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Actually, the sentence continues on there. I'm just a little nervous about trying to quote it from memory. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom, it was an age of foolishness. It was an epic of belief, it was an epic of incredulity. It was a season of light and a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. What a description of his times. But it could be a description of our day, wouldn't you say? In our world, we see these paradoxes, living side by side, apparently incompatible ways of life. One that isn't mentioned by Dickens, but is certainly true of our culture. We are at once a permissive culture and a judgmental one. We give a pass to all sorts of crime and all sorts of moral corruption. We just 
brush it aside as if it's nothing. And at the same time, we are so very self-righteous and so very quick to condemn other people. Those two things wouldn't seem to fit together, but they do fit together in our world. I learned this in an you know, unforgettable way when I met a woman, it was three years ago perhaps, who had her entire life upended because of what she called her 15 minutes of stupid. It just took a few minutes. One Facebook post. She said, that day it was like the sky was blue, but by the next day a storm had come in and completely overwhelmed her life. That post went up and people started sharing it one with another. It wasn't as outrageous as many things I've seen online, but it was at the wrong time and seen by the wrong people. And she said, within two days, I had to be the most hated woman in America. People went after her people who had never met her and who lived in other parts of the country. She wasn't a human being to them. She was an abstraction. She was some kind of evil that needed to be snuffed out, and they went after her. This storm broke around her. There was controversy. It was in the news. She eventually lost her job. It was so bad, she decided to move to another city. She did it quietly, but that wasn't good enough. These people tracked her down. They wanted to rub her out of existence. They tracked her down. She ended up leaving that job, moving again, changing her name, all because of 15 minutes of stupid. That's how harsh our culture can be. People pride themselves on being kind and forgiving and accepting other people, but I don't see a whole lot of it. I see the acceptance of immorality. I see this casualness about many forms of sin, but then there's also this hardness and this cruelty that breaks people. It's a sad thing to see. These were the sorts of people, I'm talking about these who attacked this woman, these were the sorts of people who dragged a woman caught in adultery into the crowd and in front of Jesus. They happened to be religious people, which is both tragic and all too common. They were religious leaders. They were scribes and Pharisees. They catch this woman in the very act of adultery, they said. They drag her in front of everyone. There she is, cringing in shame. Perhaps someone in the crowd looked around. Where is the man? Well, the man wasn't there, only the woman. And they said to Jesus, we caught this woman. And in the law, Moses said, a woman like this, she ought to be stoned. What do you say? They didn't care about this woman. They didn't care about the law. What they wanted to do was to, was to trap Jesus. I mean, Jesus went about talking about mercy. He talked about forgiveness. He talked about grace. 
Okay, Jesus, you believe in grace? Here's what the law says. Stoner, are you going to contradict the law? Are you going to, before all these people, say the Torah is wrong? And if Jesus says, no, the Torah is right, you should stone her. Well, so much for forgiveness, so much for mercy. You're hardly that kind teacher that everybody says you are. See, they had him trapped, or so they thought they had him trapped. And then there's the woman, shame before everyone. Jesus says nothing. He kneels to the ground and begins writing in the dirt. Wouldn't you love to know what he wrote? Lots of people speculate. Some suggest he wrote down a commandment or maybe a set of commandments, maybe the Ten Commandments. Other people suggest maybe he, maybe he wrote out the sins of all the people who had gathered there to accuse this woman. We're not told. For all we know, he was doodling. In fact, it's not a bad guess that he was. I'll tell you why. We're not told what he wrote because that's not central to the story. What's key in the story is that Jesus was disengaging from the scribes and Pharisees. They want him to render a verdict, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. So he simply turns away, kneels down, and starts doing something else. It reminds me of my grandson, Austin. He was over at the house the other day. He was playing with the little toy toolkit, and I come up, and in my best grandfather voice, hey, Austin, how are you? What's going on? And he sort of turned a shoulder to me and just played more intently with those tools. It was very clear he wanted nothing to do with talking with Papa at that moment. He was disengaging from me. That's what Jesus was doing. He was disengaging from them, and he's writing on the ground. They keep pressing their questions. They still want to trap him. Finally, Jesus stands. He looks directly at them and says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. I can only imagine. It must have been. They, they were silenced by that. What could they say in response? It says that they began to leave, beginning with the oldest, because the oldest had lived a long time, too long to think that they were sinless. They turned and slowly walked away. And then the younger ones turned and walked away. And finally, there was no one. As Augustine, writing about this passage, said, finally, there were just two, misery and mercy, standing together. The word mercy in Latin, the Latin in which Augustine wrote, is literally misery heart. It's a compound word, misery heart. It's put together to give a sense of what mercy is. Jesus, the one who feels the misery of this woman, there is misery and mercy together. Jesus asks, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Now go. Leave your life of sin. There are lots of lessons in this story for us. We can learn a lot about what it means to be a follower of Christ from a passage like this. But it's important for us to understand 
what it does not teach because sometimes people think it says things it does not say. So, first of all, Jesus does not, in this encounter, deny that the woman sinned, neither does he minimize her sin. There are some people who want to deal with the sin problem by defining it away, by saying there is no such thing. But we know there is such a thing. There are things that soil our conscience, that destroy relationships, that ruin community. Those are sins, and we can't pretend they aren't real. Jesus doesn't pretend they aren't real. So he never says that she hasn't sinned, and he doesn't minimize it. He certainly doesn't give her excuses. He doesn't say, oh, listen, I know you were so lonely. Your husband didn't love you as he should. It's understandable that you would do this. Well, you know what? She may have had a bad hand dealt to her, and it may have made it far more tempting to do wrong. And that's true for all of us. We're all tempted in different ways, and sometimes it feels almost impossible to resist. But the truth is, the car's idling, and we're the ones who throw it into gear. We're the ones who choose to do wrong. Jesus never denies that there was sin here. What's more, Jesus never suggests that there won't be a reckoning for sin. He does say to her that I don't condemn you. He absolutely says that, but he doesn't say, you know what, it's all good. It's all good, no worries. It'll come out in the wash as if it's no big deal. He doesn't preach the gospel of our day. You know, really, the problem that you have is you don't know how wonderful you are. If, if your self-esteem were higher and you felt good about yourself, then you would never do anything that was bad. He doesn't say anything about that because Jesus didn't hang on a cross to build our self-esteem. He died on a cross to save us from sin and death, and this woman was at risk because of her sin. So he never suggests otherwise. Everywhere that Jesus went, he talked about a day of judgment that all human beings would one day stand before God and have to give an account. He doesn't retract that here. There is such a day. And so it's important for us to remember that he is not simply saying there's no reckoning. There is a reckoning. And then finally, this may surprise you, but if you go back and read the passage carefully, I think you'll see that this is right. Jesus does not pronounce the woman forgiven. He says, neither do I condemn you. In other words, all these who wanted to throw a stone at you, they've walked away. They've been shamed themselves. They no longer wish to throw a stone. He says, neither do I want to throw a stone. Neither am I passing judgment on you. The day of judgment is not yet come. I am not passing judgment on you. I am not pronouncing a final verdict on you. But I'm telling you, I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you to go and choose a different life. Now you have an opportunity a new chance to live some way differently. Turn from your sin, which means, in biblical language, repent. Repent 
and turn to God. It's when she does that that she'll experience forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but cleansing and transformation. It's then that her life becomes new. It's then that she actually seizes the opportunity that she has to live a better life. So Jesus doesn't pronounce her forgiven. He spares her judgment from judging, judgment, and he encourages her to make a choice, a choice for life. And if you read the Gospels, you see he's always doing that. He's always calling people to decision. This woman can be forgiven, but something depends on her as it depends on us. So when you read this story, Jesus is not denying sin or minimizing it. He's also not denying that there is a day of judgment. And he's not even pronouncing this woman forgiven. He's encouraging her to choose a new way to repent that she might be forgiven. Now, with all that in mind, I want from a different angle to ask, what in a positive way does this passage teach us? How can we live for God in light of what Jesus says here? And it all depends on how you read yourself into the story. Do you read yourself into the woman's experience or the accuser's experience? Do you identify with the accused or do you identify with the scribes and Pharisees who do the accusing? I think most of us, probably all of us, at one time or another can identify with each because are there not times when we have sinned and we are guilty and we stand guilty before others and our conscience troubles us? I think that's true. Are there not also times when we see someone else and we want to pass judgment on them? So let's look at this passage from those two angles. Let's begin with when you identify with the woman, when you have done wrong, when other people accuse you, or perhaps it's a secret sin, and your conscience tortures you before God, what then? Well, from this passage, I think one thing we learn is that we can trust the mercy of God. Look at Jesus and his misery heart, his merciful nature. He desires this woman's salvation. He doesn't want to judge her. The scripture says, in fact, Jesus himself said that God has not sent the son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That's the purpose of God and that's the reason Jesus came. You can trust the merciful heart of God. And that means so much to know that you can come to God just like you are and find help. Psalm 21 for God hath not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he turned his face from him. But when he cried out, God heard. God does not despise you for your sin. He invites you to come. You can trust the mercy of God. But there's another lesson. See, we receive mercy, but then we need to turn that mercy into repentance. 
we have to transform it into repentance. The Puritans had a great phrase. Now, I realize that in our day, the Puritans are a kind of caricature. If you want to insult somebody, say, oh, they're such a Puritan. You know, they're a little too self-righteous. That's what Puritan means to us. But that's unfair to the actual people that we call Puritans, these historical people who were a good and godly people who sought earnestly to follow the will of God. And they were not so judgmental and harsh as they're often portrayed. No doubt some were, but so many not. They had this great phrase, about the grace of God. They said that we must improve on the grace that God shows us. Now, how do you improve on God's grace? The answer is, strictly speaking, you can't. But what they meant was when God shows us grace, we need to take hold of that. We need to seize the opportunity. We need to grow in that, build on that. It's similar to what Paul says when he says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Ultimately, we don't just flee the wrath to come. We run to the Father who sent a Savior for us. Turn mercy into repentance. Let it lead you to a change of heart, to choosing a new way. Know that God has spared you. Seize the opportunity. Don't miss it. He's given you a chance for a new life. Take it. Now, that's all if you identify with the woman, with the accused. But what about when you identify with the accusers, when you find yourself judging other people? Well, there I think it's really pretty simple. Number one, don't pose as judge and jury. Don't presume to be the one to pass judgment on other people. You may know without a doubt that they have sinned. It's not for us to pretend sin isn't sin. But you are not the judge. God is the judge. We are not to stand as if we understand the temptations that they face, that we understand all that went into their wrong and that they will answer to us in the end. No, we'll be standing side by side with them answering to God. In the first centuries of the church, there were many people who were so scandalized by the corrupt culture of the time that they fled to the deserts in order to seek salvation in prayer and fasting. There were many monastic communities formed, particularly in Egypt. And one such community had a man who is now revered as St. Moses the Black. He was called that because his skin was dark. His skin was dark because he was from Ethiopia. But he's known as St. Moses. He wasn't always a saint. In fact, he was anything but. He had been a slave to a prominent man. But that man sent him away. He, he, he just wanted nothing to do with him after Moses had murdered another man. He became the head of a group of robbers, naturally enough, because he himself was a large, very strong man, very violent. And he, along with these others, robbed and brutalized people and killed people as they pursued their own gain. It was not a pretty picture. But by the grace of God, this man came to realize who he was and what he was. 
He saw the sin in his life, and he was horrified by what he saw, and he wanted a new start. He wanted a new life. Surprising so many, he actually found himself going to one of these Christian monasteries in the desert, and he falls on his knees weeping, begging them to receive him into their community. They said, no, no. They didn't believe him. He had a reputation, and people were terrified of him. And they said no, but he stayed there, and he continued to weep and beg for weeks until finally they took him in. He didn't become St. Moses all at once. He was a violent man, and it took him a while to learn how to deal with his anger and his, his effort to control other people. He had all those thoughts still going through his mind that he had to learn to discipline. It was an arduous path, but eventually he becomes the man, or he became the man who is known today as St. Moses. As an elderly man, as one revered for his holiness, one day a messenger arrived from a nearby monastery. One of the young monks in this community had violated his vows, and so they decided there needed to be a tribunal to decide what his punishment was going to be. And they wanted St. Moses to come and serve on that tribunal to pass judgment on this young man. At first, he said no, but they repeatedly invited him, and finally he agreed, but he took a basket and he tore a hole in the bottom of it. He filled it with sand, put it on his shoulder, and began his journey to this other monastery. As he approached, the monks saw him, and they came out to meet him, and they said, Father, welcome, but why? Why are you carrying this basket? And he said, I carry my sins upon me, and they trail me. They trail behind me because as he had been walking, the sand had been falling out and leaving a trail behind him. He said, I carry my sins, and they trail behind me where I cannot see them, and I don't remember them. And I come to judge the errors of my brother. They understood the message immediately because here he is, this man who has all this baggage and he comes to judge his brother's errors and they had mercy on their brother and he was reinstated to the community. This is deep in the heart of authentic Christianity and Jesus sets the example. There is, there is no place for us to to stand as judge and jury. We whose sins trail us through life, who are we to be harsh with one another? And then not only are we not to be judge and jury, this is really crucial, I think. We need to root for people. We need to root for them, not against them. I think a lot of people believe Christians are judgmental not because we have standards, but because they think, they think we don't mind so much if God judges them. 
We don't really love them. We're not really for them. We just want them to get in line. But we need to long for the well-being of other people. I think when people sense that we are pulling for them, we are supporting them the way Jesus is for us, not against us. When people sense that, it makes all the difference. A few years ago, Linda and I found ourselves in the back of a very small courtroom. We're, we're right there in the very back row. It was a hearing, a sentencing hearing for a young man um, that we had known for some time. We were friends with the parents. He had committed a very serious offense and now he was going to be sentenced by the judge. I felt so torn because he had committed serious crime and I knew he would probably be incarcerated, and I wasn't so sure he shouldn't be incarcerated. At the same time, I wanted so much that he could receive mercy, and I wanted so much for his parents to find comfort. When his mom got, stood before the judge and pleaded for him, I couldn't. I, I couldn't take it. I wanted him. I wanted him to receive mercy. He did not. Likely he shouldn't have. And so he had to serve his time. But isn't that the way we should be with other people? We don't have to pretend people don't sin. We all sin. We don't have to pretend it. We just, we just know that we're not the ones to stand above them passing judgment. And we're the ones who should want more than anything for them to find life and happiness. Amen? Whatever your life has been to this point, you can't find it. The choice is yours. As Jesus told the woman, she had to make a choice. The choice is yours. You can make it this morning. When this service is over, I'm going to be in the front. I'd like to talk with you if you want to make that choice to become a follower of Jesus. It's a new life, a new opportunity to start a new path. And my prayer is that in these closing moments, all of us will trust God for his mercy, receive his forgiveness as we repent, but that all of us also be so filled with grace that we will show grace to others. Would you stand with me? Lord, thank you for sending us a Savior. Thank you, Lord, that though we had offended you, you did not stand far off, but you came in Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself came with mercy. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to show mercy. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.